Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. John O'Connor stays with us as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-ins back on uh, June 17th of 1972. Several burglars arrested in the office of the Democratic National Committee located, of course, in the Watergate complex of buildings in Washington, D.C. And there was uh, this was, of course, no ordinary robbery, as John has been telling us. The, the prowlers were connected to President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign, and they had been caught wiretapping phones and stealing documents and uh, the ensuing, ensuing attempted cover-up of the break-in led to President Nixon's eventual resignation in April of 1974. Uh, President Gerald Ford called it the Great National Nightmare. John O'Connor is the, the author of The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. So it sounds like you were describing a call girl ring happening inside the DNC. Well, it was a call girl referral operation. The people down the street, there was a very vibrant, busy high-class call girl ring going down in the apartments right down the street. And, and, uh, uh, and the CIA was, was protecting the call girl ring. The CIA was already taping the prostitutes and their johns at that call girl ring. Very prestigious clientele at the call girl ring. Like a honey trap. A honey trap, exactly. Some used very much for extortion. If you're a Chilean ambassador and you use that place, uh, the white and the uh, CIA tapes you, perhaps photographs you. They at least were taping you. They've got you. You know, you better start giving the beans to them or your wife is going to know that the government's going to know. Everybody's going to know. And they've got you. Also, there were some at other operations. I don't know if at this one, but they would also sometimes drug uh, Johns. But that's another matter. That's some of the stuff they were doing at other places, I think. But here, I think it was more just extortion, a honeypot, honey trap, but it was illegal. If they got caught doing it, it was illegal. And the deep throat tape that you played was talking about that. These were covert operations the CIA could not possibly 
have discovered. If they understood what was going on for decades, everybody in the CIA was going to jail. So the CIA had to cover this up. They had every motive to cover this up. Now, what's interesting is the Post did too, because their twin sister, their Siamese twin, is the DNC. They were very close to them. The Post had started its business as the proud organ of the Democratic Party in 1877. Their relationship with the DNC in 1972 was very close. They shared a general counsel. So when your lawyer is there representing both of you at the same time, you're joined at the hip. That's as close as you can get. And, and of course, the lawyer who was representing them himself was a, a big Democrat, Joseph Califano. He had been in uh, LBJ's cabinet. He was with the most prestigious Democratic firm in town. These were the power brokers. So basically, what I'm telling you is, Richard, uh, the Post knew just about everything right away. The White House did not. Okay. Now, the other thing we've talked about before, we talked about the honey pots and so forth. One of the things that the White House knew is from the monitor what they were listening to. And he talked about how they were listening to explicitly intimate, embarrassing sexual conversations. Which had okay. nothing to do with the, the Democrats' campaign in the upcoming presidential election. Right. Exactly. Nothing to do with that. And, uh, and so you have that aspect of things. Uh, now, the other thing that the Post knew very soon was that the CIA was involved. And we know this from CIA documents that talk, brag about how the uh, Woodward had agreed to protect the CIA's cover company. Now, I don't know how many of the audience remembers uh, the Valerie Plame uh, fiasco with Scooter Libby, where anyway, CIA officers, when they go to another country, always work under a cover company. They're working for, you know, Apex International and act like they have some job and they're really an agent. Okay. This CIA does this all over the world. They have people undercover just routinely. Well, this company in Washington, D.C., that Howard Hunt, one of the burglars worked for, he worked for them full-time and part-time for the White House. He worked for a cover company, which means that he's probably, and he had retired, supposedly retired from the CIA, he was undercover, okay? And he was working at the White House undercover. The Post knew that uh, almost immediately, that, they, that this was a cover company, and yet they did not tell the public that. We should, so, if I could just interject, uh, just to give listeners some context, my understanding is, uh, so these Washington Post reporters, Bernstein and um, Woodward, they, dis they discover, or there was a check apparently in one of the burglars' pocket that was signed by E. Howard Hunt. So then right. when they find out Hunt works for the CIA, that's at, at least that's the narrative in all the president's men. That oh, that's no, the White House. No, for the White House. They uh, learned that he worked for the White House. Right. In other words, uh, they discover the check with Howard Hunt has made a $6.16 check made out to his country club. Then, then Woodward is told by Deep Throat that one of the burglars had his phone number with WH next to it. Sounds like White House. Uh, Woodward calls that number and it's the switchboard of the White House. And so Woodward is blown away. I mean, this is very exciting. There's no doubt it's exciting stuff. Here's a guy caught. He's it, he, it's Howard Hunt and he's across the hotel in the hotel and they think they've gotten out of there. And it turns out one of the burglars betrays him. It's very sloppy uh, covert practice. But nonetheless, Woodward then calls up that Monday, I think, and gets Howard Hunt at the White House. And Hunt is just blown away that Woodward's got his name. And so, you know, he said something like, good God. <laughs> and so. It, you can't make this up. So now Woodward is really on something, and I, I, I understand why. And it looks like it's a big breakthrough. One of the burglars works at the White House. Uh, now, uh, so it looks like everything looks like, and then one of the guys that gets discovered is this G. Gordon Liddy, who works for the campaign as the lawyer for the campaign. So you have a guy from the White House running this and a guy from the campaign running this. So it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, waddles like a duck. It looks like the Nixon administration has just burgled um, the DNC, and they had. They had. Now, the question is who authorized it, how, how far down it went, and why they were doing it. Once you get into those details, the story changes. But if you look at it facially, boy, this is a great 
plot for a movie. You can't make it up. And that's why All the President's Men is a wonderful movie. It's my favorite movie. And yet I know now a lot of it is untrue, or at least the implications are untrue. But some of these facts cannot be denied. The CRP, the committee there, the creep, the committee to react to the president is involved in this. A White House consultant is involved in this. It's against the Democrats, right, as a, uh, the convention is coming up and an election is coming up. It's an election year. The campaign cash, they soon find out, is used to finance this thing. So for somebody like me, I'm a, I'm a beginning lawyer in San Francisco. I said, oh, my God, the White House did this. Let's go after the White House. Come on, you guys. And uh, But the public seemed somewhat uninterested for a while. It was okay. They thought it was just another little thing. Okay, big deal. The White House called it a third-rate burglary. Nobody, Richard, in the public was really too bent out of shape by this. I was uh, because I wanted to be a prosecutor. I thought there are a million federal crimes here. But the public was not interested. And then all of a sudden, this these headlines in October of 72, five months after the burglary, the thing exploded. I was blown away. I was following this every day. And all of a sudden, you get this reporting that Watergate is really part of a bigger campaign of spying and sabotage. Now, the facts of this burglary seem like, oh, my God, there's something sinister going on here. What's going on? And we're kept in suspense. We don't know as part of the public what's going on here. So it is really a very, very um, engaging uh, deal when you are someone like me. And I think I'm an intelligent observer. I've been to law school. I'm going to be a prosecutor. I'm a practicing lawyer. Um, my dad was involved in politics. This is right up my alley. My dad's partner was in the Nixon administration. So I look at this and I think this is just incredible. Now, uh, and, and then slowly, as this sensational reporting gets more and more sensational, things start to crack. But before, as it turns out, the key explosive reporting came when my client, Mark Felt, went into the garage Deep with Bob Woodward. And that's the movie that is so makes it so interesting because this whole thing exploded because of that first garage meeting. Uh, and, and, Wood, and, and Deep Throat sat on the floor with Woodward for seven hours to try to tie everything together. He needed to do this so the Post would publish the story. Uh, my client wanted the story published because the FBI felt like they were being unduly restricted in the investigation, and they were. Uh, so uh, Felt was trying to get public pressure just to let them do what they need to do and let the chips fall where they may. My client was not – actually, he liked Richard Nixon uh, – was not anti-Nixon, thought Nixon was good on law and order. Uh, he was not trying to get rid of Nixon. He was, as some people posit, that, oh, he's just a guy that was out to knife him. No, he felt that his bureau was being obstructed in what they could do. And much like the, I wish somebody would have come out when Hillary Clinton was making these deals with Russia on the uranium. But nobody came out. It never got publicized. So no, nobody's the wiser. So what he did was really very much heroic. It was he was taking a chance with his job, uh, but he felt he had to do it. He knew that it didn't look good for an FBI agent to be going to a garage with a reporter, but he had to explain to Woodward what was up. And Woodward was not a real quick study on this, and nobody in the Post was. They didn't get it. They didn't get what Felt was telling them, and he had to sit down and step by step take them through it. Spoon feed them. Um, okay, I want to uh, – so many amazing – threads here um i just I, I don't know if you've seen it i just finished watching it's a seven part series and done which i like these little mini series on uh, on amazon prime uh called gaslit with julia roberts playing martha mm-hmm. mitchell mm-hmm. the wife of former attorney right. general john mitchell sean penn is amazing he's unrecognizable as john mitchell uh and um uh, shay wiggum is brilliant as g gordon liddy he's at turns he's comical and then terror terrifying as Liddy was i mean he was clownish right. but he was also scary so it's an amazing cast but they make they make mccord look like a complete buffoon they make well Liddy is over the top and he was over the top but they make mccord 
look like the complete buffoon. And the reason he had to put the tape back on in this version is he forgot something. They get inside, and then he realizes, oh, I didn't bring the wiretap or whatever it was. So he has to exit the building, and then he puts the tape back on. So I don't know if that's if that is what happened. But the fact that they made them all look like and, – and E. Howard Hunt, they made him look like a fool as well, clownish, because obviously it's Hollywood, and they're all left-leaning Democrats. They want to they make these guys look like complete buffoons. But were they? Well, actually not. The funny thing about it is uh, – now, some of the practices like leaving – you know, they, they were very sloppy in their tradecraft, I will say that. Like somebody having a check of Howard Hunt, they had their hotel room keys on them. They should have cleaned the burglars of any in information so that nobody would know who they were, okay? They wouldn't know where they're staying. They wouldn't be able to search their rooms. All this stuff uh, sort of blew up the whole deal. So that's one thing. The second thing, but remember, because what I'm telling you here is the CIA had infiltrated this, uh, led to one of the biggest mistakes that th they they fooled Liddy. Liddy was a dupe. He was a crazy man, but he's also a dupe. He was brilliant in some aspects and just off his rocker in others and just stupid in others. Right. He uh, thought they were and, genuinely in there to gather intel on the dams. He didn't realize that the CIA had a, a, other motives. Yes, and he didn't even realize what information they were seeking. He didn't know. He didn't understand what was really going on. He was being lied to all the time. The first burglary was not about Larry O'Brien. That was a lie to him. The second one, he knew they were trying to get oppo dirt, but didn't understand what oppo dirt they were looking for. He thought it was oppo political dirt as on the campaign. In fact, it was oppo dirt. The debt had to do with the whorehouse, with the call girl ring. What did the call girls know about Republicans? Who was using the call girl operation? Okay, but Liddy did not know that. He knew they were going after Oppo Dirt. So uh, now, in terms of the bungling of this, when Liddy, uh, when the when the thing was busted that night, Liddy went home to his wife and said, "I'm going to jail, and I'll tell you why. I'm going to jail because I left on the team James McCord. James McCord was the security director of the campaign to reelect the president." supposedly, and this shows you the CIA's pernicious infiltration, for five months, supposedly, uh, Hunt had been looking for a so-called wireman, the guy that would do the wiretapping. There are probably 5,000 retired wiremen in Washington, D.C. from the CIA and probably 20,000 from other agencies, from the Army. They're all living, they're all living in D.C. You could have gotten a wireman, but supposedly for five months, Hunt was looking for a wireman for Liddy and couldn't find one, so he had to use McCord. Well, McCord was the security director of the CRP, and one uh, part of tradecraft is you, you, you always have, you should be double blind, but you should at least be single blind. In other words, double blind means you don't know who you're, who's hiring you and, and so forth. And, 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 and anyway, now, and, and, and nobody who, who arrests you can know, can, can, Right. Not only, not only that, but McCord was very familiar with Martha Mitchell. And Martha Mitchell would later recognize the name, right, in the L.A. Times newspaper. We'll get into that. Right, 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 right. So he was, he was, he, he was, and Mitch, Martha Mitchell was no fan of his. And he was on the security detail along with this guy, the monitor, Baldwin, who both were taking care of Martha Mitchell. But McCord, by McCord being on the burglary team, if there was an arrest, it's it's a shining light on the CRP. Here, here they're supposed to be devoid of all these identifying characteristics. One guy works for the CRP. They get arrested. Game, jig is up. Liddy said, boy, I was stupid. I had McCord on the team. Well, the bungling, they make it look like it's bungling, but this isn't bungling, Richard. This has a design to it. McCord has to stay on the team if you're going to fool your bosses about what's happening. You need somebody on the team to pull all your dirty stunts and to lie to Liddy and to tell him you've wiretapped uh, a guy that you haven't wiretapped, to say that you've bought a, a device you haven't bought, to say what you're really doing. So you needed McCord on there, and Hunt knew he had to have McCord on there, you see. And so uh, while, while it looks like it's bungling, it's all a result of the fact that the CIA needed CIA people in there to control things. So. Uh, it, it, and the CIA didn't really care 
uh, well, I don't want to say they didn't care because they felt they had authorization to do this. They always had a defense that this was an authorized operation by the president of the United States through his agents because John Dean had approved it and they'd heard that Mitchell had. Mitchell hadn't, but they thought Mitchell had. Liddy thought Mitchell had approved this. So it looked like it was, a, for the CIA's purpose, it looks like a presidential authorized uh, national security covert plan de destined operation. And that's the way they were always going to defend themselves. So their purposes are not the same of, as Liddy's. They don't care so much if they get caught. And as a matter of fact, later on, 10 years down the line, when Congress discovers they're doing all this stuff, the CIA can say, well, we had our CIA guy in there, McCord. We had Hunt. The president approved of all this. This is an approved operation. So they even liked the fact that a CIA guy was on the team because it would help them in their get out of jail card whenever this, this operation got discovered. And they, of course, the CIA would later use this operation as cleansing other illegal operations. Well, the White House said we could do all this. And so, sure, we went out and we wiretapped 10 other operations. Uh, but this was all part of this deal that the White House had authorized. So, for example, with Liddy's $30,000, they didn't buy a $30,000 bug. What did they buy? They bought six bugs that would uplink to a satellite. Those bugs were still on order when they were arrested. Now. If in the future, those bugs showed up someplace else, those bugs would then be identified as being bought by the White House and by campaign money because you could trace the checks. Those bugs, these six bugs that were on order, uplinked to a satellite. Now, nobody had satellites back in 1972 except the intelligence agencies. And this particular satellite, these bugs were, were uh, geared to hook up to the CIA satellite that, it, that the CIA had. You could prove that these bugs that were on order were for the CIA. So let's say those six bugs later on were at, planted in six different uh, call girl extortion operations. Congress calls you in. We, th no, this is what was authorized. We're supposed to do this all over the place. We told the people in the White House what we were doing, and they authorized this. This is a national security operation because we want to find out who's betraying our country. And the only way we can do it is find out what they're talking about to prostitutes. Mitchell. I've had some disturbing news, sir. Operation Watergate. Uh, security guards busted wide open. The next 48 hours are going to be crucial. I don't know how to put this. Uh, we're wondering about your wife. Y'all going to just stand around or you want to ask me some questions? Worked for Martha Mitchell's husband. Yeah, she's completely insane. Loud mouth. She's a truth teller. Unreliable. I love her. You don't know me. I told you no more interviews. It's a ladies' magazine. I will say how I feel, and if that gets me banned off Air Force One, I will fly commercial. So you were banned from Air Force One. <laughs> You're good. You can just keep your mouth shut. We'll be fine. If the American people knew half of what I do, they wouldn't have much to approve of. The loudmouth wife of his is becoming too much of a liability. That is from Gaslit, a trailer for the uh, Amazon Prime series starring Julia Roberts as Martha Mitchell, Sean Penn as uh, John Mitchell, and uh, Shea Wiggum as uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Now here uh, in this tale, this version, which is Watergate through the eyes of the Mitchells and also John Dean, they seem to be implicating John Mitchell. You're saying really he, was, he didn't know. John Mitchell was not involved at all. He was horrified when he investigated post-burglary arrests, and he called it a chamber of horrors. He was completely straight. He is the most badly maligned person in Watergate. Other people share different levels of guilt about different things that came out at Watergate. He's the only guy that is innocent of all things, and yet... <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he's getting he's getting it. Uh, he died a broken man. Uh, you know, he said his real problem was people, the people he chose to be around. And uh, I feel very sorry for him. And I always thought that at the time, even back in the days when I wanted everybody in the Nixon administration to go to jail, I felt even then that the case against 
Mitchell was extremely weak. And if it hadn't been for all the Watergate furor, uh, you know, he should have walked. Nonetheless, I'm sure the show is good and it's got good actors. And I think you're right. The the makeup they use on Sean Penn is just stunning. Martha Mitchell, of course, the mouth of the South, as they called her, was a person who was kind of a lively person who was fond of the drink, as we say in Ireland. And, uh, you know, and, and so she had good instincts that her husband certainly felt under siege once these uh, arrests occurred. And she, of course, recognized the shadowy figure of McCord. But the fact is, Mitchell, he was disgusted by the whole thing, the way it happened. Uh, and and it's, it's really sort of a shame, but makes for interesting TV. And I, I, I can't wait to see the way they do Liddy and these folks. I think it, it should be wonderful. And I, everybody says it's a great series. Yeah, you're going to enjoy it, I think. Uh, Martha Mitchell, a very tragic figure because, you know, she tried to stand by her husband, but as you say, the mouth, she she loved the limelight. She loved being on with Barbara Walters, and she became the darling and uh, of the media as long as she was, you know, bad-mouthing Richard Nixon. Uh, but it really, I mean, it tore the, the, the family apart. It, it destroyed the family and destroyed her ultimately. I mean, she died a broken woman as well, penniless, I think. Right. Yeah, she perfected the art of what we call drunk dialing. And that's what she did. She drunk dialed all the time. She was always drunk and became a, a great caricature. She would show up on TV with a big phone and people would make fun of it. Uh, but she really was just uh, crazed. There's one incident that, that just came out recently that it turns out when John Mitchell had had enough and he wasn't hanging around her, uh, he hadn't really left her, but uh, she invited Woodward to come in and look at all her husband's papers, including his attorney client papers and Woodward came in and looked at him and you look at that stuff and you say my god these guys got away with a lot of things these reporters got away with a lot that's really I hate to say it that's probably criminal conduct uh, to do that and uh, but nonetheless he did it and uh, all things were excused when the burglars were put on trial and uh, Judge Sirica was going to give them like the maximum like 30 years for this third-rate burglary but he wanted to make an example I guess of them and um, McCord um, basically spilled the beans, right? He wrote a letter to Sirica uh, claiming he perjured himself. At least this is the Hollywood version. You tell me if I'm wrong. Claiming he perjured himself and that uh, this was um, this was not, um, you know, a, a White House operation. It was part of a greater, a, a wider conspiracy. Is that well, he did blame it. He did blame it. He came out and blamed the White House is what he did. McCord did. But let me tell you what happened. McCord had written several notes to the White House through his contact, uh, the detective there named John Caulfield. And one of them, he said, if you get rid of Richard Helms, that's the director of the CIA, every tree in the forest will fall. Now, Nixon suspected the CIA was in this up to their necks, but couldn't, of course, prove it because that's their job is not to allow you to prove it, have plausible deniability. And so Nixon shipped Helms out at, in January 1973 to be ambassador of Iran. And her, Helms burnt all his documents and all the tapes he had. He had thousands of hours of tapes. <coughs> and, and of course, that's exactly what McCord thought shouldn't happen. He was warning the White House. And so when it came time for McCord sentencing in late March of 1973, Probably we all should have been yelling timber because those trees were going to fall. So what happened was it was a strategy whereby <clears throat> the CIA would come unleashed, come unglued on the White House so that they would not be uncovered. So when McCord writes this dramatic letter to Sirica, Sirica loves it because Sirica during the trial thinks somebody in the White House has authorized these burglaries and nobody's talking about it. People don't know that McCord's a CIA agent, really a CIA agent, an undercover guy, an infiltrator. They don't know that. So McCord comes out with this dramatic letter, and everybody goes, gasp. Oh, amazing. He's just unleashed. He said there was perjury at the trial. Well, there was, and other things. But he lays it all out on the White House. And, of course, he has fired his regular lawyer, who was a very good lawyer. He was the partner of F. Lee Bailey. Uh, and uh, he hired a guy that wasn't a criminal lawyer, but he was connected to the CIA, a guy named Bud Fensterwald. And so he and Fensterwald went together on this 
uh, plan to now turn everybody's attention as the cover-up is cracking to the White House. It works. It works. Now, most of what McCord said was hearsay, but nonetheless, it works. Now, remember what I had told you before that Dean and Magruder, I thought, were behind this, right? One of the first things McCord says, and I think it's to, to somebody who interviews him, he said, oh, yeah, Dean and Magruder were authorized this, okay? Now, guess what? What do you do if you're in John Dean's situation and you realize, <clears throat> I'm going to, I'm next guy that's going to be, and what do you do? Turn over. You turn over and all of a sudden you're a Boy Scout caught in bad company. Oh my gosh, Mrs. Cleaver, I didn't mean to do this, but I'm going to tell because I really have been very upset about this for a long time. I'm going to talk about- There's Richard a cancer Nixon. on the presidency. There's a cancer on the presidency. <laughs> oh yes, that's exactly it. When Dean went in to tell him that, he did that as a last ditch effort. On May 21st, McCord's letter to the court is May 23rd. He hasn't named Dean yet. Okay. Dean is still undercover. Nobody understands what Dean is all about. But on March 21, he comes into Nixon's office, says there's a cancer on the presidency. Why does he say that? He says that to try to get Nixon to claim broad executive and attorney-client privilege so that John Dean never has to testify. If Dean has to testify, now he's got a choice of perjuring himself or whatever, and he doesn't know who's going to come in and get him and get him for perjury. But didn't Haldeman ask Dean to, to conduct his own investigation? And Dean thought, well, if I do that, now I'm, I'm really, you know, up. Well, yes and no. Actually, the president had kept talking about the Dean investigation, as it, and it's going to clear the White House. What had happened was Dean had told everybody at the beginning that nobody in the White House was involved. But guess who was involved that was with the White House? John Dean. <laughs> John Dean. <laughs> so he was telling Nixon that, and then Nixon would tell the reporters, oh, I've got John Dean's, the Dean report will do this and that. Well, right around March, Nixon, and maybe Haldeman did also, had him go to Camp David to supposedly write the Dean report. Well, Dean, if he wrote it down, it would just be a lie. He knew the thing was going to crack, and he also knew very quickly that McCord was going to nail him, okay? McCord had him, Okay. And he was, and it was hearsay, but he, it was pretty, you know, you, you could probably link it by conspiratorial statements to, uh, to Dean. Hunt had pleaded guilty at Dean's advice, and Dean didn't realize that meant that Hunt was also subject to be called to the grand jury. He would have to finger Dean. Dean knew his time was up if he didn't get Nixon to protect him and pay off Hunt. He wanted Hunt paid off, and he wanted Nixon to assert privilege. Once that didn't happen, then McCord starts blowing his his deal. Dean had to hustle fast. So he he he's already hired a lawyer. He goes over, starts turning state's evidence. Did he finger so Mitchell? This, what? Did he finger Mitchell? He did not. He originally, but Magruder did. Magruder quickly understood that he better have, because um, Dean could bring Nixon to the prosecutors on the cover-up, okay? Um Dean might have had some weak, weak idea that Nick's, that Mitchell had, and he hadn't. I think I, I'm not clear if he ever claimed falsely that Mitchell had confessed to him, uh, but he wouldn't be able to finger Mitchell as authorizing the thing. Magruder's get out of jail card was that Mitchell told me to do it because you see, if Magruder, if 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 Magruder said Dean did it. Dean had me, then both Dean and Magruder were, looked like the bad guys, which they were. If in others, if if Magruder didn't finger Mitchell, but Magruder, it's natural he fingers his boss. That gets in Mitchell. The prosecutors love that. He lays off Dean. Okay. Meanwhile, Dean goes to Nixon. Dean lays off Magruder. Magruder lays off Dean. Dean gets Nixon. Uh, Magruder gets Mitchell. And, and Dean and Magruder look like little choir boys. They're both good looking guys and they paint themselves as being really just aw shucks. We got caught up with these bad men. John, got to take another time out. John O'Connor, The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, if you want to get the real history of Watergate, this is the one as we mem uh, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Back with more in a minute. 
Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. A trusted sponsor of my show, GetTheTea.com, is having their summer sale. Hey guys, let's talk about Father's Day. What kind of gift would you like to give your dad? Why not think about a gift that would help his digestion? Remember, Life Change Tea is an amazing, gentle cleanse that he can use daily for gut health. Who doesn't need that? I know I do. I drink it every day. It comes in three different flavors, natural, peppermint, and my favorite, pomegranate. You need to try it. The combination of 12 herbs just does a beautiful number on my insides. Right now, they're having their big summer sale. Buy three, get one free. That's right, buy three, get one free. Life Change Tea is not a fad. They've been around since 2007 helping thousands of people, and it's made right in the USA. It's easy to brew, keep it in your fridge, and you drink it daily. It's summertime, and I always want to have a big glass of iced tea. That's why I drink Life Change Tea. Buy now and get one month of tea for free. Go to getthetea.com forward slash Richard to order yours today. Use the code Richard10 to get an additional $10 off plus free shipping. That's over $50 in savings. Again, that's getthetea.com forward slash Richard and use the code Richard and the number 10, Richard10 for $10 more plus free shipping. Don't miss out. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. There you go. 
Uh, he made that statement at Disneyland, of all places. <laughs> How appropriate. Uh, Richard Nixon, of course, and then would uh, resign, well, not too long after that, in August of 1974. Not for the break-in, but for the cover-up. And let's talk about Deep Throat, because you uh, represented Mark Felt much later. Was it after he was identified as the deputy director? We didn't know who Deep Throat was for the longest time, for decades. My role was back when I was a young man in San Francisco, I made, I had a fetish of figuring out who Deep Throat was. I was an aspiring prosecutor and eventually became a junior prosecutor. By the time that Woodward's and Bernstein's book came out, identifying the shadowy character Deep Throat, I was a prosecutor and I made it my mission to figure out who Deep Throat was. And by 1976, I felt I could prove his identity to a unanimous jury beyond a reasonable doubt. That's how clear I was on the proof. Now, at the time, I thought, who's going to believe this junior guy in San Francisco? And so I just let it drop. I was getting married, left the office, and uh, it was uh, 30 years later, 25 years later, I suppose, that I'm sitting in the chair I'm in right now, looking across the table at uh, a young fellow. And uh, he tells me, just in passing, my dad was an FBI agent. He says, well, his grandfather's an FBI agent. I said, well, what's your grandfather's name? Oh, it's Mark Felt. Well, mm -hmm. here I am 25 years later. I have all this knowledge. And I say, well, your, your grandfather's deep throat. I think I know why he's not talking. Let me come up and talk to him. I think I can talk him into admitting he's deep throat. I think I can talk him into coming out because I know what he's thinking. And I think I can disabuse him of some notions. And so that's how it all started. So I started talking to Mark with the his daughter's approval, Nick's mother's approval, and um, we're still to this day ends and uh, carrying the torch for Mark. It's just been something that I'm passionate about, uh, and now it's going on 50 years uh, that I've been in, involved in this. Um, I, I started my first job the day, the first Monday after the arrest, the Watergate arrest, and I was just fascinated by this. How did you convince I mean, you were the one that then convinced Mark Felt to come out as Deep Throat. What did you say to him? Well, I started out by saying, and this took a while, Richard, but I, I started out by saying when I I was introduced by, by Joan as being a family friend, and then I qualified myself. I said I was a U.S. attorney. I know I knew his motives. He was a Justice Department guy, an FBI guy. He wanted to keep the system pure. So I knew that. I knew his motives. And you've got to, if you're going to figure out who somebody is, you've got to know their motives. Uh, means, motive, opportunity. You learn their motives. And so I knew his motives. He wanted the story out to protect the Justice Department from any accusation that they had whitewashed the Watergate investigation. He cared about the FBI deeply and its reputation. So when I met him, I qualified as an FBI guy. I said, Mark, my dad was an FBI agent. Oh, was oh, that right? I said, yeah, he chased German spies like you did. Oh, great. And I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Oh, great, great, great. And I worked with the FBI all the time. Oh, great. And my good friend is Bob Mueller. He was the head of the FBI. Oh, yeah, Bob. Oh, yeah. And my dad's partner, Bill Ruckelshaus, I worked for in Washington. For Bill Ruckelhaus? Yeah, Bill Ruckelhaus was the interim head of the FBI after Patrick Gray got in trouble. My dad's partner was his boss, was Mark's boss. So I identified myself and he thought, oh, this is a great guy. I'm talking to an FBI guy here, John O'Connor. And then I said, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about Deep Throat, this fellow Deep Throat, Mark. And as soon as I did this, he grabbed his chair, his knuckles got white, his jaw stuck out. And, and then I started on, I said, and the reason we young prosecutors love this guy Deep Throat is because he kept our system pure. He kept it from being corrupted. We cared about that. We were prosecutors. My FBI, young FBI agents felt the same way. This deep throat is a hero. He was wonderful. And as I did this, it was like I was letting a man out of jail. It's like I was giving him a sinner absolution. And his grip loosens and his eyes start to melt. He's got these beautiful blue eyes, even when he's 89 years old. And he starts to melt. And it's like he's just in my thrall. And his daughter and son-in-law are on the daybed next to us. They can't believe this because every time you bring up Deep Throat for the past 30 years, he would adamantly deny it. Now, here he is talking to this guy, and he seems to be... Now what I did was I pulled a trick. I was talking about Deep Throat in the third person. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford. 
will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. There you go, August of 1974, Watergate, the scandal that uh, for the first time forcibly removed a president from the, uh, the Oval Office in the history of the United States. Fifty years ago, it all began June 17th with the arrest in two, at 2.30 in the morning of the uh, Watergate burglars. John O'Connor is with us, the mysteries of Watergate, what really happened. We're talking about how you convinced W. Mark Felt, who was the deputy director of the FBI, who was also the, the, uh, the whistleblower known as Deep Throat. We're familiar with that character, of course. Hal Holbrook played him in All the President's Men. So you convinced him, uh, you know, portraying yourself as uh, loyal to the FBI and how prosecutors in the FBI uh, felt that Deep Throat was a hero because he was his motive was to keep the justice system pure. And that's why he was leaking this information to the Washington Post. And that's exactly why he didn't want to ever be revealed, because he thought the real law enforcement type guys would look down on him. So I wanted to qualify myself as a law enforcement guy. And then I would say the younger law enforcement guys like me that are now not so young approve of you. He cared about their disapproval. That's why he stayed in the closet. He knew that regular people would think he's heroic, but law enforcement people wouldn't. And I was trying to convince him because I knew that. I figured this out. Uh, Most people didn't know who Deep Throat was. I knew it was him. It wasn't some noble person from the White House, as many suspected. It wasn't Diane Sawyer. So I switched from the third person to the second person. And I said, So you, Mark, should come out and tell your story before Woodward does, because you can tell your story in the way that emphasizes your heroism and your good motives. And as I said that, he's sitting like this. And meanwhile, his daughter and grandson are just blown away. Their mouths are agape. This is the guy that kept denying angrily he was deep throat, and he's listening to me, and this guy is clearly buying my program. Now, at the end of it, he said, well, I'll think about what you say, and I'll give you my answer soon. Well, he would only give... And I was telling him that he had to come out and tell a story. Well, you could only do that. You would only consider giving the answer if you were deep throat, and he didn't angrily deny it. Now, because he had, you know, some dementia, once I left him, he kind of forgot a lot of the things I said and just, but I had stirred up a hornet's nest and he would tell his caretaker, an FBI agent just doesn't act like this. I can't come out. I can't do it. And we went through this for a while. Okay. We went through it for a while, but um, eventually, you know, it took a while, and his all his defenses were hardwired, even after he started admitting it. And, and Joan and I were on him and so forth, and we would do all kinds of things to get him to admit. He never really had said it. It took him a couple weeks, and I've got a tape of mine someplace. The first time he said, you know, they admitted he was deep throat, at least he had just admitted to Joan the day before um, when an old girlfriend called and admitted to Joan that uh, that Mark had admitted it to him uh, a romantic at a, at a romantic night when Mark was leaving for California and leaving her in D.C. Her grandchildren in D.C. His were in California. Uh, sad end to a romance, but they both had to stay with their grandkids. So um, he told her it was sort of a romantic going away present. I want to let you know I'm deep throat. And they had romantic letters after that, and she saved them all. And she was going into dementia and she had all her letters out on the bed, apparently. So I talked to her. I realized she was going dingy, you know, and she probably wasn't, unfortunately, was lost to me as a witness because she was no longer reliable uh, as I tried to prove it to people. And then I had like, it took a couple of years to try to get anybody to bite off on the story. I mean, I could prove it. I could go through my proof and people seem to buy it, but they don't like they don't understand what lawyers understand that circumstantial evidence is more powerful than, you know, somebody coming up and saying, yes, I did it. Just got a couple of minutes here, John. Uh, let's go back to your previous book, Postgate, how the Washington Post covered up Watergate, betrayed Deep Throat and began today's um, partisan and advocacy journalism. How did the Washington Post betray Deep Throat? Well, they did it for some years and are continuing to do it today, uh, Woodward made four protective promises to Deep Throat, one of which he would never tell the world that he had a secret source of any kind. Then he becomes the most uh, important secret source ever known. And that's exactly what Woodward promised him he wouldn't do. He wouldn't say he had a secret source. And he he also said he would never name him. Well, he was going to name him when Mark died. That's one of the ways I talked Mark into coming out. Woodward's going to name you. You don't 
you know, Mark cared about the FBI, not about him. It's not okay for Mark to die and for him to go spill the secret that besmirches the FBI. That's completely contrary to what Mark thought the agreement was. Now that's one betrayal. Then, then Richard, they, uh, when he uh, did um, uh, black bag jobs, ser searches on the weather underground and the PLO, the Washington Post urged that he be indicted. And, and because they didn't understand what we today called FISA searches. And he got indicted. And the Post cheered for his conviction. And he got convicted. And the judge had given some instructions. It was like a kangaroo court because the Post was all over him. Okay. Here's the guy that made the Washington Post, <laughs> really, right. because of his right. information. And now I'll tell you something else. Because of his trial and what his anxious wife went through, she killed herself. Oh, dear. I'm not making this up. She killed herself with his service revolver. The Post did this. I'm sorry. The Post did it. Now, why was FISA passed? Do you know about FISA? We've yes. been through this. With Trump. FISA was passed to protect people like Mark Felt. That's why it was passed, because everyone understood. It used to be the FBI did this on its own judgment, and you didn't have bureaucracy. Now you've introduced the bureaucracy of FISA, which protects people that shouldn't be protected, but also induces bureaucratic delays, which caused 9-11. 9-11 was caused by FISA and the uh, bureaucratic slowness of getting a warrant approval. Meanwhile, we have Zacharias Musai's computer that would have stopped that the FBI wanted to open, but they couldn't do it because FISA grinds slowly. Now we have James Comey using FISA as a way of spying on the White House. You can't make this up, but all of this comes from them betraying him. Now I come along later on and try to get the post to uh, cooperate with me, Woodward. They won't do it. Uh, and I go through a lot of stuff in Postgate, other things of betrayal, but I will assure you, assure you that there are more betrayals than the ones I've just told you. And this is someone who has made their paper, made them billions of dollars. And needless to say, they do not like my book very much and are not really happy to publicize it. But if you want to know about the Washington Post, read Postgate. If you want to know about Watergate, read the Mysteries of Watergate. They both are fascinating in their own way. If you don't want to learn about journalism, don't read my post book Postgate. If you just want to know about Watergate, uh, uh, I, the mysteries of Watergate will suffice. And I tell, talk a little bit about the Post in there and how important it was that they, for them that they didn't publicize some of the things I'm telling you today. All right. So Postgate, how the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. You can uh, find that at postgatebook.com. You can also subscribe to the fabulous podcast, The Mysteries of Watergate. And of course, the brand new The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened, uh, the, uh, the, the, the book also available. John, what a, uh, a delight. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, I had some fun talking to you, Richard. You What's good about your show is you develop long conversations and you have sequential thought, and it's very good for our uh, for our conversations, our public conversations, that you have hosts that can do that. So I, I just give you great kudos. Thank you so much. John O'Connor. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.